If you were raised in the church, you probably are familiar at some level with this story. You probably have memories of it. I think of this, this is one of those uh, children's illustrated Bible stories for me. Like I have this image, maybe you have an image kind of like the one that will be on the screen when you read this story. When I think of the Tower of Babel, I have this picture of a tiered tower going up into the clouds and all these people in chaos down below because God confused their languages. There's a real typical lesson, I think, that we learn from this story often that's taught, and that is um, humanity should never attempt to be like God or to reach God on their own. And if they do, then as a sign of judgment, God will scatter them. He's, that's what people were doing in this. God, God confused their languages and he scattered them. And if we do that, if we try to reach God in our own power, if we think we can do it, he will scatter us. We learn, don't try to be like God or this will happen to you. And I think there's some truth to that part of this story, but I think there's a lot more to this story. I'm not even sure as I read it and as I read chapter 10 before it, I'm not even sure that being scattered was really a curse or a judgment or punishment. Jesus said to be fruitful and multiply the whole earth. I think there's more to this story and I'm excited to dig into it with you today. I do want to mention something though. If you have been reading along with us, so we are in chapter 11 and I hope you have been reading along with us. But if you are, if you are then you may have read chapter 10 and it may have confused you a little bit because there's, there's something interesting that happens in chapter 10. So right before this chapter, right before chapter 11, obviously chapter 10 describes all these people, these many peoples that are born of the sons of Noah. And, he des- and it describes in chapter 10 that they're scattered all over the place and that they have unique languages. It says in 10 verse 5, from these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, into their nations. So if you were reading from what Ryan taught in in chapter 9 last week, God's covenant with all of creation and the rainbow, and if you're reading from chapter 9 into chapter 10, you might think that the scattered nations that we read about with their unique languages is actually the fulfillment of God's command to be fruitful and multiply the earth. It might look like obedience to you. But then right after that chapter, in chapter 11, as Sam just read, it opens with this in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. So the author of Genesis chose to put these in not chronological order. Chapter 11 actually comes before chapter 10. He was employing a literary device, sort of like um, a flashback or maybe a backstory. He, he describes the spread of these people and their diverse languages, and then he describes the origin of that diversity. And I think he did that for a specific reason. Chapter 10 presents a reality that looks one way, but then chapter 11 provides that backstory. And in that backstory is an important lesson for us. And I think it's really um, a uniquely important and a uniquely modern lesson for us for today. So let's kind of go through this narrative a little bit. What's really going on here? So we have the descendants of Noah. And remember, those were the only people that were left um, after the flood, they had migrant, it says they had migrated to the land of Shinar. Uh, what we would maybe say is Mesopotamia. That's that, that just general area. They were a giant, monochromatic, monolinguistic family, essentially. They were like the Robertsons from Duck Dynasty. Or maybe the Kardashians. Or maybe the Kennedys. 
They all look the same and they all talk the same. But they were this big, giant, inward family and they decide to build, it says, a city and a tower. The tower gets all the attention in this story, but really the tower is only part of this story. They were building an entire city with a tower to reach into the heavens, it says. The tower was probably built both to show their human strength, to show their human ingenuity, also probably built as a way to protect themselves, but the tower is just part of the story. In fact, at the end of the section that that Samantha read a few minutes ago, God disperses everyone, and he doesn't even mention the tower. He just says they basically abandoned their building of the city. So we see in this section, in this narrative, we see a twofold purpose in this city uh, that will eventually um, be called Babel. The first thing, the first purpose we see was that it was to make their name great. We see that in verse 4. We're not told of any great sins of this people. We are just told that their mindset in building the city was their own great name. They were building a city for their name and not for God's name. And this is not unlike many of our great modern secular cities and many of our great modern nations. Every city, and especially cities like San Francisco, they want to be world-class cities. San Francisco's not unlike this. San Francisco, unlike Babel, is very ethnically diverse. It's very linguistically diverse. But there seems to be a very intentional component of this city that wants to kind of block out certain ways of thinking, certain political perspectives. It's very monopolitical. And then we also have this giant tower. Just saying. Actually, I love that tower, but that's just me. So back to Babel. Babel, the Bab, the people of this city, this family, this giant family that had come together and they, they, had, they had multiplied as they, uh, they had been fruitful, as they had been told. They wanted a great name, but it also says they wanted to sequester themselves within the city walls, and that's our second reason for this city, also in verse 4, so that they would not be scattered over the face of the earth. This is interesting. They clearly feared being fractured and scattered. These people saw value and power and comfort and security in remaining inward focused. They wanted to be sequestered from anything that might infiltrate them and separate them. And in that purpose, we see that this city was founded on two things. It was founded on pride and it was founded on fear. And pride and fear are both terrible motivators for anything, dangerous ones. But in their pride and in their fear, they were going against God's cultural mandate that he made in Genesis 1 verse 28, where he said, be fruitful. Now, I will say they seem to like this particular part of the mandate. They were very fruitful. But they ignored the second part of the mandate, to multiply the earth. They didn't want the whole earth. They did not want to spread out. They wanted to stay safe and secure within the walls of their city. It says in verse 5 that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. The author of Genesis here is, is essentially using this figurative speech to sort of mock these people. He's mocking the whole thing. He's highlighting their arrogance. Their grand city and tower was so small that the Lord, that God had to come down to see it. 
And then in verse 6, we see a really important verse. It says this, God said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This is sort of like God is saying that they are on a slippery slope. This is only the beginning of what they will do. He's looking at them like a father or a mother, like we often look at our kids who have pulled away from wise thinking, and we think this may just be one thing, but it is a slippery slope to many worse things. We do this often as parents. We correct something small to try to avert the bigger thing that might come. Sometimes we, though, as parents are wrong. I, for one, tend to see slippery slopes all over the place, even where they don't exist. I remember when our kids wanted a nightlight, and I was like, if we give them a nightlight, they will never be able to sleep without a light, and they will, their roommates will hate them, and they'll never get married. <laughs> I tend to lean toward the dramatic. I'm always wondering if they're little steps of independence that we might not love, like wearing ripped jeans or pajama pants to school or dyeing their hair purple, if, if those things are some form of gateway rebellion, that if we don't stop that, there's no telling what real rebellion might come, even though those things are relatively insignificant. But the, the reality is, is that God does know slippery slopes. God is never reactionary or extreme or overdramatic like I can be, and like maybe some of us can be. He is a perfect father. It says in Hebrews 12, he is a perfect father who always acts for our good. It is always for our good. Everything that he does in our lives is so that ultimately, even though it may be painful in the moment, it says, it ultimately leads to the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God will often step in to thwart what he knows will hurt us. And I think that is really what he does here. He says in verse 7, Let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And then he disperses them all over the face of the earth, and they abandon building their city. We often see this. I often thought of this as punishment or a curse or judgment. But maybe it was more like protection. Maybe it was more like God was protecting them from themselves. Maybe he knew what we know today and what we see today to be so true, maybe he knew the danger of hyper-nationalism. Maybe he knew the danger of too much homogenous living, of groupthink, or of echo chambers. And maybe in addition to protection, this was also correction to help them see that, that they were not all that they thought they were, to see that they could not find their security or their value or their worth apart from God. And maybe it was correction to make sure that they fulfilled his cultural mandate to fill all the earth. Sometimes a good father will do that. He protects his kids from their own dangerous impulses. And he corrects his kids when they stray off course. I used to run in Midland with a friend of mine, and, and we would run on occasion, and I ran all the time around the, the dangerous streets of Midland, Texas, without this guy, but when we would run together and we would come to an intersection, he would put his hand in front of me, as if without him there, I would have run headlong into the traffic, and it drove me nuts. I quit trying to be my dad. 
But sometimes God holds out his hand in front of us because he knows he needs to stop us and we always need him to be our dad. I never want to thwart his protective hand even though sometimes I think I know what's best and I can take care of myself. I never want to assert my own independence when God effectively holds me back. It never goes well. And I think that's what God, the perfect father, was doing here. He was protecting in part, and he was correcting in part. So as I was thinking, what do we have for us in this story? We see that the people of Babel, they valued and exalted themselves. They sought to maintain life as they knew it. They didn't want to pollute what they had. They felt that they were safest, sequestered. They didn't want to leave what they knew. They, they did not want to have anything that came in and changed what they felt was safe and what they felt was strong and what they felt made them great. They were motivated by pride and by fear, and they sought to create in their own power a world that would be comfortable and safe. These people were what I call babylists. I made that word up. It's not in the Bible. I just let me put that out there. But I think this is a story about God protecting people and correcting people from babylism. Think about this in our modern world that we live in today. Right now, 2019, we have a growing global culture of extreme nationalism. We have ethnocentrism where we take our we we judge other people's cultures based on our own ethnic culture. We have xenophobia. We have racism. We have all this out in the world. We also have it in religion. We have religions in certain places of the world fighting for cultural dominance. And then in other places, fighting just to, to try desperately just to blend in with culture and not get noticed. We see this in our personal lives. where contrary to what we say, whether we realize it or not. Very often, contrary to the exact words that we say about ourselves, we tend to sequester ourselves along cultural or ethnic lines. But if not cultural or ethnic, along socioeconomic lines or life stage lines or educational lines or political ideology lines. We, we tend in those places to have this very myopic perspective on life. We only, only see what is right in front of us and we only care about what we can see. We fear those who are not like us. We live in an increasingly us versus them mindset. And I believe God is challenging us against babelism in the church, but also in our personal lives. And I think we have to ask ourselves the questions, is this a babelist church? So here in 1st SF, one thing that is true about us as a local body is that we are very diverse. We have people in this place from all ethnic backgrounds. Many, well not all, many, many ethnic backgrounds. We have people here of all ages. We have people here in all life stages. We have people from the poorest side to the richest side of a socioeconomic spectrum. You could come into this church and you could look around and you could check the I go to a diverse church box very easily. That's for sure. But I think we need to look beyond our surface diversity. I think we also have to look 
closely and guard against a fear-based fortress mentality in this church. We just sung that God is our fortress. This organization, this building should never be our fortress. We have to realize that even though we may have a lot of diversity in here, we may use this place, and I'm talking about the local church here. We may use this place as a fortress for all of us with a homogenous belief system. This could be a place that we see as a place to protect us from the secular, unbelieving, hostile world that exists out there. But God didn't send his son for us so that we could hide in here. And so that we could get some sort of spiritual hit each week. Some hit of nourishment that we just hope will last until the next Sunday. And then sneak back into culture and hide everything that we celebrate in here on a week by week basis. He called us to go into the world and to share the good news that we have. To share the good news that we know. To help people take one step closer to Jesus. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19. And really... Almost the whole focus of the New Testament calls us out of a comfortable, safe environment and into a world that is different from us. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are Christ's ambassadors in the world. An ambassador, by definition, lives in a foreign world with people who are not like them. As we will see in our study of Jesus' last night in John 17, Jesus prayed to God for us, and he says he prayed that God would keep us in the world, but that he would protect us from the evil one as we carry out our purpose in the world. This is not to be a fortress where we guard and protect our Christian way of life. It is to be a training ground to prepare us for all that we will face as God's witnesses and his ambassadors out there in the world. The prideful side of babylonism can also surface in the church. When the church forgets that we can do nothing outside of the power of his Holy Spirit. It can be very easy in a place like this to gather a bunch of highly functioning, very talented people who can make things happen in their own power and slowly but surely forget that we can do nothing here on our own. It's very easy as a church to make decisions on what we can do with the people and the money that we have. Instead of saying, God, what do you have for us to do? And in many ways, when we focus just on what we can do with what we have, it's like building a tower of God, a tower to God in our own strength and in our own power and for our own name. We have to be careful that we don't limit our vision of what God wants to do in this place to things that we can achieve without God's power and his intervention. I remember when we did the first carol fest back in 2017 it was this huge undertaking for us it was something that we had no idea whether or not it would actually succeed we were so aware of the reality that if it was going to work it was going to be because God made it work and we bathed that event in prayer we sought God diligently at every step of the way as we prepared for that first carol fest because we were so aware that we absolutely needed him. And then when it turned out to be a great success, we were so aware that its success was only because God made it succeed. I believe when we decided to move forward with Carol Fest, it was partially because God saw our tendency towards dependence on our own power. 
And he protected us from what could have been a failure had we relied solely on ourselves. This past year when we did our second carol fest, we had to guard against pride and self-sufficiency, thinking we've got this because we've done it before. We had to intentionally focus on that reality that just because we've done it before doesn't mean it's going to succeed in our own power. We needed the Lord's intervention. We should always have a palpable sense of dependence on God in everything we do as a church. We don't want to be a Babylonist church, but we also don't want to be individual Babylonists. The second question each of us needs to ask is, am I a Babylonist? As I mentioned, one of the greatest assets of this church is this church's diversity. But this church's diversity can also be one of the hardest things about this church. Because diversity is hard. Conflict is inevitable when you have different ways of thinking and different motives and different cultures and different traditions. We value diversity so much, but very often we hear from people who come into this place and see so much diversity and don't return because of it. They walk in here and they don't see a clear group that looks like them. We can't deny that the diversity we value can also make community and connection hard. And we can say we love how diverse this church is and still be Babylonists. Sometimes we have to look deeper for hidden Babylistic tendencies. So ask yourselves these questions. I'll ask you, do you have friends in this place who are of different ethnicity than you? And don't get smug if your answer is yes. What about friends of different ages? Don't be smug. What about different life stages? What about different socioeconomic status? What about different cultural backgrounds? One of the things I've learned in my six years here is that not all Asians are the same. But also, I've learned that not all white people are the same. As someone from the American South, I have to admit, sometimes I just want to be around other Southerners. Because I want to be around other people who think that deep fat fried is a food group. I want to be around other people that see vegetables as an optional thing that you might put on the plate to give it some color. If you're a native San Franciscan, or maybe you've lived here a long time, do you connect with the new people to San Francisco? Or do you build a wall around yourself to keep them out? We had a Texan guest speaker at Redefine. How many of you youth or youth leaders wondered if somebody from there could actually know and speak into people like us? If you've been in this church for a long time, how do you view the change and the new ideas that come with new people? If you are new to this place, are you willing to sit and listen and understand the history and understand why we might do the things we do here? These are all things that we all need to think about because I believe if we don't, if we become just sequestered people and without opening ourselves to the great real diversity that's in this place, God will step in to protect or to correct us. We also need to look for the personal back. We also need to understand that this idea of personal babblism is not just how we interconnect with people in the church, it's also how we connect with people outside of the body of Christ as well. Babblism can lead to an echo chamber mentality where all we hear, what, what, what people just like us are saying. 
And that can cause, over time, like-minded people to move collectively into dangerous or hurtful places. We have to check our hearts for where we are finding our pride or our security. Nations are not bad. God set up a system of nations. I love our nation, but we cannot put our hope for peace and security in our national strength or pride. Or in international alliances or in treaties. We can't put our hope for protection in politics or in legislation. It doesn't mean we don't care about these things. It doesn't mean we don't care about peace. We certainly don't go against peace. But we never put our hope for peace in those things. Because the truth is those things will fail. Human diplomacy done in human power will ultimately break down. They will all fail at some point, and we can blame Adam for that. God, in verse 5 of chapter 11, calls these people who are building the city and tower, he calls them children of man. That means they were born through Adam, and that means that they were born sinful, sinful, selfish, godless men and women, just like all of, our, all of us are on our own. And then out of this group of people, God confused the languages and scattered them, creating nations of sinful, selfish, godless men and women. Which means that strife among the nations and strife within the nations is inevitable. Every secular society is destined to be unstable. Even though a people may have a pure motive uh, to find meaning and to find stability in their collective national or ethnic unity, their sinful nature will surface. And within our sinful nature lies strong appetites for power. Within our sinful nature lies fears that seek protection at all costs. Within our sinful nature lies often a great desire for whatever somebody else happens to have. In all sinful men and women exists an inborn desire to protect and to pursue their own self-interests. We will never achieve peace in our flesh. We need something else. And thankfully God has provided it in Jesus. And in the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit that happens when we surrender our lives to him. At Pentecost, which we see the story of in Acts 2, we see the great reversal and restoration of the confused languages of Genesis 11. In Acts 2, verses 1 through 13, the church is birthed and the Holy Spirit comes to those who have been saved by Christ. And it describes this crazy, diverse group of people. It says people from all nations were together. And the Spirit comes to all the believers in there, and he doesn't remove the diverse languages, but he allows the believers to speak and hear and understand each other. One commentator compared Pentecost and Babel this way. He said this, The Spirit alters the effects of their languages from deconstructing the community to reconstructing the new community of the church. With the Holy Spirit, we hear and understand. Without him, we misunderstand through fear, distrust, and self-ambition. Peace is impossible without the Prince of Peace. Babylonism, walls and towers of like-mindedness designed to protect those, those 
those walls and towers that are designed to protect paradoxically shut out the only true protection that we will ever find. Again, striving for peace is not bad. We should be peacemakers. But when we put our hope in any human efforts, we are essentially building a tower that will fall apart. And we are being as arrogant as the people in this story that we just read. And God will protect us from ourselves and he will correct us where necessary to bring us back to the truth that only in Jesus will we find the security that we seek and only in sharing Jesus will we really be helpful in furthering the peace and security that we all so desperately want. If we really care about peace, we should be passionate sharers of the gospel first. If you know Jesus in this room, you have all the peace and security and identity that you will ever need. And if you don't know Jesus in this room, you can have all of that in a moment. And there is power and beauty and joy in knowing him and knowing that security and knowing that peace and having that identity. There is power and beauty and joy in doing all of that alongside the young and the old and the rich and the poor and alongside people whose cultures and backgrounds are so different than your own. This is how God designed it. This is how the gospel is magnified. This is how the distinctives that set Christians apart are manifested. This is how God is revealed to a world that is looking in all of the wrong places for what we already have in Christ. Look at this church and look at your life and ask yourself, Am I a babblist? If you're honest, like I was this week, you will find evidences of babblism all over yourself. Surrender your desire for the safety of the familiar. Branch out, not just in your Christian relationships, but definitely in your Christian relationships, but also branch out into the world that so desperately wants and needs what only Jesus can provide. I want to close with this quote from John Piper. Just listen to these words. A great part of the glory of the gospel is that it is not provincial. It is not a tribal religion. It breaks into every language and every people. If there were no diversity of languages, if the sin of Babel had not happened, and if God had not confused our speech... The global glory of the gospel of Christ would not shine as beautifully as it does in the prism of thousands of languages. How powerful is that picture? Let's make sure that we don't just shine the light of the gospel through a one-dimensional language of uniformity. Let's shine it through the rich diversity, the prism of the rich diversity that we have not only in this place, but that is out there all around us.